Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Yalu on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Lou, CREI Fertility Specialist, Gynecologist, and Director of Women's Health Melbourne. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Many people are affected by infertility. If you know someone who might benefit from listening to Knocked Up, please send them a link. This is our passion project. We do it to support and empower women with evidence-based information, to cut through the noise of Google and advice others might give. Well-meaning, but not necessarily up-to-date. Email your questions, which we keep totally anonymous, to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Dr Alice Rudd is a dermatologist who has her own clinic, Skin Depth, in Melbourne. Alice has worked for many years in all areas of dermatology and has a special focus on post-adolescent acne and the management of PCOVs and other endocrine skin conditions. She is also an expert in anti-aging and cosmetic dermatology. Welcome, Alice. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into dermatology. Well, like most medical specialists, I've had a long journey from many years at medical school, six years in fact, and then several years out in the wide world of a public hospital system doing general medicine. I actually thought I wanted to be be a paediatrician initially and I started to work on the paediatric training program and decided that it was far too distressing for me and I was far too sad. So I decided I wanted to look at something that was a little bit more holistic and where I could treat patients throughout their life and dermatology struck me as the perfect combination of treating people from the day they're born to the day they die because it's real, there is really no time in your life where you don't have a skin condition. And I love that continuity that I get with my patients. I see them for their eczema when they're a baby, their acne in their teenage years, for their skin checks later in life and anything else that comes up in between. And it's something people are so self-conscious about that... Yeah, being able to trust someone and seeing their confidence change. Well, I think increasingly now in the era of social media, people are becoming more and more self-conscious. For example, when I grew up, there was no such thing as a mobile phone, let alone Instagram or Facebook, and now there's such pressure to look good and how you feel is very much dependent on how you look these days. Having acne after you turn 30, is that normal? How common is it? Because a lot of people seem to have it. Really good question. We used to think acne was a teenage disease and that you had a few pimples when you were a teenager and you grew out of them. But we now understand that acne is actually a chronic condition. And part of the reason I think we see it so commonly in women in their 30s, late 20s, is that they're often on the contraceptive pill that they have been given for their acne in their teenage years and then they stop it to become pregnant or because they get some side effect or they don't want to take it anymore. And then this horrendous cystic acne 
eventuates. And I think it's probably always been there. I just think that we haven't actually recognised it or seen it because it's probably been masked by something else. Yeah, it's true. So do you know how the pill stops you from getting acne? Have you thought about it, George? Well, for me, I just, I figured it's the hormones. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. It's I'm... not actually so much, actually. It, it's So what happens is that we've all got hormones, particularly androgens, which are kind of male style hormones. And the most powerful androgens are related to testosterone. And what happens when you're on the pill is a couple of things, but... Firstly, and there are different types of pills and they work in different types of ways, but some of the pills themselves actually have androgen blockers in them. But a lot of the way the pill actually works, apart from the fact that your hormones are pretty steady state on the pill, I mean, you have a little peak when you take the pill and a little kind of low point when the next pill is due, but the average is pretty steady. It's not ups and downs. You take it every day. Yeah. But also the pill induces enzymes in your liver which then makes you make more of a protein called sex hormone binding globulin and that or SHBG if you've ever seen it on a blood test and sex hormone binding globulin is really important for mopping up testosterone. So the more sex hormone binding globulin you have, the less free testosterone you have and it's the free testosterone in your bloodstream that really stirs up acne and that's why you get it when you're a teenager because your testosterone and your estrogen as a woman, but, you know, testosterone as well, and in boys, same testosterone going up, can really flare acne. Would you say, Alice? I totally agree with you. (laughs) But in terms of coming off the pill, obviously you can't stay on the pill and get pregnant. So, you know, kind of had patients like you who who come and they've come off the pill and had, had a flare. How would you advise patients who are trying to conceive, what other things can they do if they are having a resurgence of their acne? It really depends on how quickly they want to conceive. So I do get some women coming to see me who know that they're going to get acne coming off the pill and they say, I would like to get pregnant in the next two years. So if there's, if there's a timeline at around two years or 18 months, then we can probably look at substituting it for a different medication, coming off the pill and giving something such as isotretinoin, which will more likely not affect the hormones but actually affect the grease glands in the skin so that you're not reliant on treating your hormones to control your acne. That's more likely considered to be a longer-term fix. But if you haven't got that time and you want to get pregnant next month, then there's multiple things we can do usually topically. So we'd probably not look at giving medication at that point unless it was something like a gentle antibiotic, although I did read on the weekend actually that there's some new um, research into macrolide antibiotics being dangerous in the first parts of pregnancy. So traditionally we would have given something like that, which we probably won't be. But I like to advise just a simple skincare routine because most people who haven't had acne when they've been on the pill actually don't know what to do with their skin because they actually didn't have pimples. So their whole skin milieu and the microbiome, et cetera, of their skin completely changes. So it's about educating what the skin needs at this particular point in time and also what it's re- what's required in terms of safety in pregnancy. So if we were to prescribe topical antibiotics or topical treatments, we would try to stick to Category A medications and we'd sort of combine that with skincare and possibly some treatments. What kind of part does diet play in acne? There's really only two researched and proven factors in diet and acne, and that's dairy And that probably relates to insulin-like growth factor um, and a hormonal uh, emphasis and sugar. We know that sugar is obviously very pro-inflammatory. Everything else, whether it's um, 
gluten or anything else that people try to tell me is making their acne worse. It could be, but it's most likely to be the dairy and the sugar. And particularly um, there's dairy and things that you don't even think about, such as whey protein powders, which I often see people are consuming it as part of smoothies and that's essentially dairy that you're consuming. People don't even realise they're doing it. So part of our consultation is to actually break down exactly what you're eating daily. You mentioned tretinoin. Yeah, isotretinoin. There's tretinoin and then there's isotretinoin. Well, I guess as my friends have been having babies, they've been giving me their retinol. Great. <laughs> Over-the-counter retinol. Take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, lo- <laughs> I'm loving it. But they can't use it while they're getting pregnant or while they're pregnant. Well, look, it's it's controversial actually. So um, it depends on which obstetrician you talk to and I would always tell patients to take the guidance of their obstetrician on this note because I'm not the one that should ultimately decide on that. But there's a great variability in what the obstetricians allow and some will say it's fine to use a little bit of topical tretinoin, you're not drinking it, it's not really going to be used in enough of a quantity to be absorbed. And there are some who are real purists who say absolutely don't use it. My experience is that most patients don't want to because they don't want to take any risks and most pregnant women don't. But I guess we don't 100% know the risk of topical tretinoin. Okay. Now, oral vitamin A. Yes, which is that roaccutane? That's, ro- that's isotretinoin. Right. Has been linked with teratogenic problems What's in that? children. So that means that children can be born abnormally with, you know, li- missing limbs or not formed in a proper manner. And really the studies came from the very, from a long time ago when we first had isotretinoin in the 80s. And there were some children that were born without limbs or had some teratogenic effects. And women were taking isotretinoin, but they've never actually been able to prove that that, that, was, was. that was the cause. And, of course, with any pregnant population, there's not going to be any clinical trials that are going to prove or disprove it. So I guess we can't tell the safety of oral isotretinoin pregnancy either. Probably a low dose is, a, is okay if you just think about the vitamin A that you might take in a supplement or within your food. We're all consuming it every day anyway. Yeah. This is certainly a higher dose, but doses of five milligrams are probably safe, but there's never going to be a dermatologist yeah. or any doctor that would tell you to take that in pregnancy because we just don't know. Yeah. So long-winded answer to your question is <laughs> we're unsure at this point. Yeah. And but I- if you get pregnant when you're using topical vitamin A, then you don't have to worry. It's going to yeah. be fine. And when we say topical vitamin A, that covers tretinoin, retinoids, retinol, over-the-counter, as well as prescription? Yeah, so basically the, you know, the generic umbrella term is vitamin A yeah. and it comes in multiple different varieties. So tretinoin, as you mentioned, is the prescription form of vitamin A and there are other prescription forms such as adapalene, um, mult- there are many. But the over-the-counter ones won't be called that. They'll be, you've got to look for um, on the label, there'll be names like retinaldehyde or retinol or retinal. These are all the precursors to the active version of vitamin A in our skin, which is retinoic acid. So when you give an over-the-counter vitamin A, you're actually just giving the precursor to the active form of vitamin A in your skin. When you give a prescription vitamin A, you're actually giving the skin the active form. Right. So the skin hasn't got to break it down or the body hasn't got to make it into an active form that the skin can actually use. Yeah. The problem with prescription vitamin A is it often is very irritating Mm -hmm. and it's usually irritating in people who don't actually have enough vitamin A in their skin. So they get something what's called a retinoid dermatitis where 
I don't know if you used it, Geordie, when you first started, if you get a little bit flaky when you first started, like the skin can feel a bit irritated. Yeah. Basically what that is is that the skin is very deficient in vitamin A receptors. So that happens from when we're two or even younger and it's all related to sun exposure. Okay. So probably Australians have lower vitamin A receptors than Europeans or people who don't experience as much sun exposure. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that the receptors are reduced just from chronic UV and sun exposure. And so when you introduce vitamin A into the skin, there aren't enough receptors in the skin to absorb that vitamin A. So you get flaky and irritated because all this vitamin A is sticking around in your skin that's got nowhere to go because there are no receptors, if that makes sense. Yes. So as you use it more... You build up your receptors and then the vitamin A can actually do its thing. So that dermatitis that you get usually settles with continued use. Okay. And then the warnings over pregnancy and conception and the vitamin A, is that the same for the -the over-the-counter? When I I say over-the-counter, I mean beauty products you buy in a department store. Most Well, we we apply the same rule to all of them because we don't know. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned sun exposure briefly just then. <laughs> it's something Raylia talks often about is the important importance of protecting yourself from the sun. Well, it's a balance, isn't it? Because everyone's vitamin D deficient as well. <laughs> Apparently. But you're talking to the dermatologist. So when my patients say to me, oh, but I need to get some sun for my vitamin D, I say, yes, but you can take a tablet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I tell my patients, just put it next to your toothbrush because if I do the blood test, you're going to be deficient. So just take it. Yeah. And I guess the, the story with vitamin D, and this is what the Cancer Council of Australia, you know, their statement and policy is that we don't actually know what the safe level of sun exposure is that you need to get your vitamin D. So, for example, you, Geordie, you would need two minutes of UV to get your vitamin D up because you're so fair. Yes. But somebody who's a little bit more tanned will take much longer to get their vitamin D up. So you can't just say go out for 10 minutes because that's not going to work for everybody. Yeah. What kind of sunscreen should you use? Because I think we're learning a bit more about um, like zinc or a mineral block or a chemical block. Is there anything we should be careful with? with... Yeah, well, we know that some of the chemicals in uh, sunscreens that aren't a barrier have been shown to have uh, some detrimental effects on sperm in studies. So there's all these chemicals in, in sunscreen that sometimes uh, we're a little bit not sure if they might have some unwanted effects. What's your take on on sunscreens during pregnancy? I would always recommend a physical blocking sunscreen for the reason that you've just said in that you do absorb the chemicals in a chemical sunscreen and that's how they work. The skin absorbs the chemicals, it absorbs the UV light and the chemicals break up the UV light and re-emit it out of your skin kind of like a lower frequency if you like. So you're always going to absorb some of the chemicals. So my policy is always if you can use a physical blocking sunscreen, such as a zinc or titanium. Of course, traditionally, those kind of sunscreens, the sort of Shane-worn zinc look, um, but they are making much... They're getting much better now. (laughs) Yeah, they're making much nicer (laughs) formulations now. So really, there's no excuse not to wear a physical blocker, I don't think. Is there anything else you should be doing differently when you're trying to conceive or um, are pregnant? I know people complain about pigmentation. Absolutely. So pigmentation is one of the huge things in pregnancy. Is that melasma? It can be melasma, but it can be any type of pigmentation. You know, women often get that little um, little bit of pigmentation on their under, beneath their belly button, so-called the linea nigra, probably should be renamed. Um, but these pigmentation of any cause can come up. And melasma is the most common one and the most debilitating one because once it's been set off, very, very difficult to get back under control. And obviously the most important thing is your sun protection in that situation. So another topic that patients ask me about all the time 
uh, because, you know, especially the demographic that I treat, also the demographic that I'm in, you know, late 30s, early 40s, very addicted to certain things that make us look a little bit younger. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) So tell me, what do you do in pregnancy um, when you want to help somebody but we've told them you shouldn't do your Botox, you shouldn't do, you know, this, that and the other? What can you do to maintain in that nine months of pregnancy. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real problem because a lot of people are addicted and they're used to their three monthly treatments and then they're sort of in the face of 18 months potentially of no treatments, pregnancy and breastfeeding. I guess the thing to say specifically about injectables like you referred to earlier is that um, botulinum toxin doesn't actually cross um, the placenta. So, you know, again, like the vitamin A thing, it's probably safe, but again, we wouldn't be recommending that. Um, we would ordinarily recommend to women in that phase the use of treatments. So lasers and skin peels and facials are all very safe in pregnancy if they're performed sort of from the neck up. So you wouldn't be doing laser hair removal on someone's belly button while they're pregnant, but you certainly can do laser on the face or you can do things like LED light. So most of the time the skin does improve a bit in pregnancy. So even if you do have acne, I always tell patients that you're probably going to get an improvement once you're in the pregnancy. Some people get worse, which is really awful, but more commonly they get better. So actually their skin does improve. So that's a a big advantage. But we would always recommend skincare and the use of some treatments and particularly LED lights been shown to be pretty safe. Yeah. With Botox and fillers as as we know Mm. them, could you maybe talk us through exactly what they are a bit? and what the risks might be? Well, as the name suggests, Botox is a toxin. So Botox is just short for botulinum toxin and there's a whole bunch of different companies that make it. Botox is the one that first... The brand. The brand that first um, was discovered actually by some ophthalmologists who were treating... um, Well, someone in your family will know better than me, but um, they were were trying to treat... I can't remember if it was... It was a twitch. Is it right? No, it was a twitch, was it? It was a twitch, yeah. And all these women came in and said, oh, doctor... To their ophthalmologist, oh, what have you done to my eyes? It's so fantastic. So they had no wrinkles around yeah. their eyes, and it was actually um, Jean Carruthers, who's I've an American. Some interviews with she's her. incredible, yeah. and her husband as well, ophthalmologists, and they discovered botulinum toxin for cosmetic use, and so that was how it was first discovered. Yeah. Um, so I have no idea how it works in eyes, but we know that what what the toxin does is it actually blocks the message from your nerve fibres to your muscle from acting on it. So from the fi- the message from the nerve to the muscle acting. And there's a little molecule in there called acetylcholine. And basically what it does is it blocks that little message from your nervous system to your muscle to move your muscle. So when that is blocked, there's no message getting through to the muscle to move. So this is really useful for muscles that overwork. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that you completely stop moving, but it's really good for those muscles that overwork. And overworked muscles are the ones that create lines in the skin, you know, such as your frown line yep. and your crow's feet. So so it works sort of on a neurological way, and it's now why we're using botulinum toxin in spasticity and bladder disorders. You know, it's I get got it for migraines. Yeah, it's the most incredible it's, treatment for so changed, many it's things. Actually, it's changed yeah. my life, and that's what people mm. say. And we do the same thing for you know, it's in the injecting jaw, in, in the jaw, and yeah. it's incredible. People have this whole new quality yeah. of life. I know I ground, I could grind for Australia and New Zealand during my dermatology <laughs> exams, and I had so much pain in my face. And someone injected my masseters, um, you know, the clenching muscles, and yeah. it was truly life changing. So. Again, it's just like that neurological sort of chemical pathway that gets blocked. So I guess that's the mechanism. Yeah. You know, the risks are really very few. It's actually really, really safe. There's really very few risks. When you're injecting in the face for cosmetic reasons, 
really the main things are a little bruising, a little pain. And if you've had it for the first time, you often get a really bad headache Mm because it doesn't matter where you're injecting it, there's tension in the face and it releases that tension, much like it helps your migraines, which often are related to tension. So in terms of the risks, there's probably very few, except that when we do do it in the face, you have to have someone who knows their anatomy because sometimes you can end up with a dropped eyebrow or, you know, a bit asymmetric, one side a bit more treated than the other. So really those things are very fixable and it's very, very safe. And because it's it's because it's relatively new that we don't know the long-term effects and that's why with pregnancy we, we take precaution. I, I totally agree with what Alice has said. I, I can't see how giving a little bit of local Botox is going to do anything bad to a baby. It's not going to travel in your bloodstream. It's not going to be of a dose that can do anything terrible. But what Botox actually technically is, I mean, it's a toxin from a bacteria. And that's why when you make jam, you have to sterilize the jars because if you, you know, kind of otherwise you can grow this bacteria that makes Botox. And that's where the word botulism comes from. You can get a lockjaw, you know, it's like tetanus, but you can get, you know, from, from having yeah. this botulinum toxin, you can get kind of like paralyzed Mm. and you can stop breathing and you can die so in terms of injecting a toxin into a pregnant woman it's just like a bit of a no-no like we just kind of you know we're so careful these days with introducing anything in pregnancy and you'd never run a clinical trial to see if it was safe like let's take this group of pregnant women and inject them with a toxin and see what happens. Like that's not no. going to get through an ethics committee. <laughs> so, so that's why we don't do it. Um, and that comes back from thalidomide. You know, there have been drugs that have been introduced without due, due caution and they've caused birth defects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's really strict criteria before introducing any drug to pregnant women just to make sure that, that it's safe. You have to be... 99.99999% sure that nothing bad will happen. And also the treatment has to be, has to tick the box of being necessary. And, you know, Botox doesn't tick that box because the reason to give it is cosmetic, which is important and meaningful, but you don't die from not having Botox while you're pregnant. No. So, you know, you just wouldn't get the ethics committee up to run that trial. We've got a very strict policy that we don't, you know, we're always very cautious about asking a patient every single time that they're ever injected about whether they're pregnant. Um, And I don't know what your thoughts are about breastfeeding, but we have a policy where we probably don't, we don't inject people who are breastfeeding either. But again, for the same reasons, you know, no one's going to test that population either. So it's a little different when not, it's not different, but you know, the, the other injectable that we use is dermal fillers and that yeah. isn't a toxin. Okay. So that's a, just a hyaluronic acid. So yeah. basically it's a natural Which occurring. is in most moisturisers. Yeah. yeah. Which, so it's very interesting, which is a complete waste of time and money. Yes. Because hyaluronic acid is a, even though it occurs naturally in our skin, we all have hyaluronic acid in our skin. It's a very big molecule. So if you put it onto the skin, it doesn't actually get into your skin. So it feels great because it glides on, but it doesn't do anything for your skin in the long term. It might make no, it feel it temporary. great for the day. Brilliant. Temporarily, greatly, <laughs> really, really hydrated. And, you know, there's so many people who've tried different, you know, smaller molecules and it just the, the molecule itself cannot penetrate the skin. So that's why we inject it in the form of dermal fillers, which just contain pure hyaluronic acid. Now, that's just a sugar. That's just a synthetic sugar that gets injected into the skin where it needs to be. So that's not a toxin, but equally we wouldn't inject dermal fillers into pregnant women. Yeah. Do you know what? We actually use hyaluronic acid in IVF. Okay. We use it. It's called embryo glue. You do? I heard oh. you talk about it the yeah. other day. What does it do? Well, it's, it's like we use a little bit of hyaluronic acid around the embryo in the dish 
And it basically increases the likelihood that when we place an embryo under ultrasound guidance, that it'll stay where we put it. So that if we decide, like the best, the ultimate place to place an embryo is in the top third of the endometrial cavity in the lining of the uterus. So when we place it there under ultrasound, you know, it may move and you can get ectopic pregnancies from doing a beautiful embryo transfer in the right place because the naughty little embryo snuck up a tube kind yeah. of thing. So the embryo glue, it's not actually a glue, it's a good name, but it just encourages the embryo to stay yeah. in that area where it can implant and, and be safe. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So we think of different ways to use, mm. it's like the ophthalmologist crossing yeah. over to yeah, the dermatologist. Exactly. We think of different ways well, to use it. Many things are discovered by accident. Yeah. We sort of talked about melasma and pigmentation, but I wanted to ask a bit about scarring. Often when someone's trying to conceive, if they're seeking fertility treatment, at some stage they might need to have keyhole surgery or some sort of procedure. Have you got any advice on scarring? I guess the most common type of scarring I see would be from a post-cesarean section. Yes. So I don't know about laparoscopic procedures in pregnancy, but certainly I see a lot of women who've had a cesarean section and they get variable scars. So if you have a tendency to keloid scarring or hypertrophic scarring, what's, for example. What's keloid scarring? So that's an abnormal scar response. So most people who get an injury, their skin will heal and it will heal like with a nice flat white scar. There are some people, and we think it's probably genetically programmed, who will heal with a lumpy scar or a raised scar that's often quite itchy and often very unsightly. So women who are prone to that kind of scarring, and they would know that because they would have had a procedure before that had done that or acne can lead to that kind of scarring without an actual procedure, they would usually know that. And so there are things you can do at the time of the surgery or immediately after the surgery to lessen that scarring. And that would be things like injecting corticosteroid into the scar to stop it from actually producing itself. Um, and then if if it's different type of scarring where it's flat scarring and it's unsightly scarring, we would laser those type of scars. So if they're red, which they often are for mm. up to 12 to 18 months after the surgery, we would use a redness laser or a vascular laser as we call it. And that often reduces down the redness. And sometimes it's, it's the redness that's so visible that's the problem. And most people see redness as... A problem. You know, a problem. And, you know, traditionally that's all, I guess, from the fight or flight response, you know, we, we see red as danger and so it's always very noticeable when there's red. So removing the red often makes people much happier. But then there are other kind of treatments that we can do that are a little bit more invasive that can break up scar tissue and improve the appearance. But in terms of prevention, there's not a lot. There's a, there's studies that have been done on topical silicon, you know, such as stratoderm. There's all these things that have been tried, bio-oil, but the results really probably aren't that impressive and probably not that necessarily reproducible. It's more about the skin in the first place. Yeah, it's all genetic, I think. What about stretch marks? Is there anything that women can do to prevent stretch no, marks? No, absolutely nothing. And that's another <laughs> thing. Nothing. And that's another thing that I get sold all the time with these companies with new creams. And again, it, it's just a stretching of your elastin and your collagen. There's absolutely nothing you can do to stop them. And they do improve with time um, post-pregnancy, but you can't do anything to prevent them. Not that I'm aware of, unless you know anything, but that's... No, just, just asking yeah. for any information. We, we talk a lot about um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So we've certainly, on the podcast, we've covered this in many episodes. Because mm. it's, yes, it's, it's common. It's common, yeah. And Raylia has it on her blog and it's part of what you Big treat. Big part of my practice. Yeah, and we sort of, what comes up often in the conversation is what it can do to skin. I don't know, Raylia, if you want to talk about what it is a little bit and then maybe, Alice, you can tell us what you do about your skin if you've got PCOS. 
Yeah, sure. Well, look, polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's a bit of a misnomer in a way because technically you don't have to have polycystic ovaries to have polycystic ovarian syndrome. However, most people do. And it's a whole group and a spectrum of women who have irregular periods, often a big powerful ovary with lots of eggs, and that's all the cysts are. They're not actually a a bad cyst. People say, oh, can we get rid of the cysts? I'm like, no, you can't. They're your eggs. You don't want to get rid of the cysts. And, and it's pretty much a hormonal imbalance so that they don't have a regular period and they don't necessarily know when they're releasing an egg. Many women with polycystic ovarian syndrome still do release an egg and still do ovulate, but they might, instead of ovulating every 28 days um, in the middle of their cycle, they might ovulate every 50 days or every 70 days or one month every 30 days and then the next month after, you know, 55 days Mm. and it's really hard given the fact that and you know looking back at past episodes we've done a few on the old-fashioned way which is what to do to get pregnant when you're trying naturally if you're not releasing an egg you're out of the game so if you're not having any periods at all and you're not ovulating there's no way you're going to get pregnant if you're releasing an egg irregularly you have no way of knowing when the right time is to have sex so that there's sperm waiting for that egg and so it's frustrating and while many women with polycystic ovarian syndrome have conceived naturally, that's one of the barriers, that they don't know when to try and that the eggs are not released nearly as regularly as you or I might have because most women will have 12 ovulations in a year and 12 opportunities to conceive and someone who doesn't release an egg every month isn't going to have those same number of opportunities. So it's a syndrome that has a big spectrum of effects in some women, it's very dominated by the ovary, so that that's the main problem, that they've got this very big ovary. It's just a little bit too enthusiastic. The hormones that it produces are a little bit out of balance, and that's the main issue. Other women might have a less polycystic ovary, but they might have a lot of insulin resistance, and that might be because they're carrying extra weight, or it might be because they've got diabetes in their family and we can't kind of choose our genes. Uh, and so there's a real crossover in terms of how important lifestyle is and how it will be beneficial by making lifestyle changes to really reduce your symptoms. One of the things that can happen with polycystic ovaries is high androgen levels, which is the hormone that we spoke about earlier. Mm. And that can have unwanted effects. So it can cause acne, but it can also cause excessive hair growth on the skin, um, often on the face or on the tummy, on the breasts, places that women don't want to be hairy. And also it can cause hair loss on the scalp. So it's pretty much a trifecta that no woman wants. (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah. So we do also see a lot of patients who aren't actively trying to conceive because that stage of your life is quite a short stage in relationship to the rest of your life. So um, I often do treat women with things like the oral contraceptive pill, but then, you know, I would refer to someone like Alice to, you know, have a more holistic, you know, kind of, intervention on on those fronts of excess hair growth, uh, skin control that's not achieved by hormonal methods and um, hair loss on the scalp is such an important area for women. Do you want to talk about what you do when I send those patients (laughs) to you? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for sending those patients. Um, Yeah, look, it's it's a really interesting one, the PCOS. They are the most recalcitrant patients. So they're often the patients that you can't get better 
mm. consistently. You know, I really like to get patients better and, you know, you really like to get patients pregnant. I really like to cure their acne if I possibly can. But it's one population of my patients that we find it really difficult. And I tell them that from the outset. I say, you've got these this genetic predisposition, if that's what it is, that you produce these hormones and I can't really change that. But we can try to help what they're manifesting as in the skin and... They are usually the people that require repeated treatments and courses of treatment. So like you said, we sort of just attack it from what bothers them the most. And you're right, the hair really bothers women, particularly mm. having facial hair. And we're pretty lucky these days We've that we've got we, laser lasers now. now. And we didn't really used no. to have them. So women had to wax and shave. And, you know, that's that's quite a brutal to your skin and time-consuming. And laser's fantastic, except that in this population we always say that unlike someone who doesn't have an underlying hormonal issue, you might do a course of laser and then maybe you need a little top up every couple of years. These patients need them consistently. You know, you need a laser treatment probably every couple of months or every six weeks in some women. So it's something that they need to look at in the in the long term. And as long as they're aware of that, then often that's very manageable. And laser's very cheap these days, particularly, you know, laser hair removal. Yeah. So that's our sort of first go-to. There are other ways of removing hair, but if laser is, um, if they're a suitable candidate for laser, they've got the right coloured hair and the right skin tone, then I would always suggest that as a first line. If they don't, then there are other options we discuss. Um, there are other ways of reducing the hair that isn't just laser, and um, Rayleigh's alluded to that, the contraceptive mm. pill, which blocks the effects of that hormone, can often reduce the hair growth. Okay. But if they can't take the contraceptive pill for some reason or they're still getting hairy despite the contraceptive pill, then we would add in further androgen-blocking drugs. And so there's medications like spironolactone, androcur, flutamide. There's multiple different medications that we can use that will reduce growth of hair on the face and the body. And the beauty of these drugs, and I, I, I still don't understand on a hormonal basis how it works, is that they will reduce hair on the face and body, yet they will thicken hair on the scalp. And as Rayleigh alluded to, um, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome usually get hair thinning or often get hair thinning, and we, we know that as androgenetic alopecia. So they usually get it not just from their PCOS but also because it's a family history, but they get very debilitated by hair thinning. And by that I mean your scalp becomes more visible, your part widens, you put your hair in a ponytail, it feels really thin, and women really find that distressing mm. because for females hair is such a part of their identity Absolutely. and their personality and Men are a bit more accustomed to it. They just know they're going to have to shave their head and it's sort of a bit more acceptable. But for women, it's really tough. So these anti-androgen medications do tend to block the effect of the thinning on the scalp and then they tend to reduce the hair on the body and it's sort of a seems like the op two opposite things And but it seems to work extremely well. Um, and similarly, these medications also work for acne. So if they're not wanting to conceive then these anti-androgen medications are usually a very good option. Yeah. And just the reason you can't use them when you are trying to conceive is, especially if you're carrying a boy baby, you don't want to block those androgens. Oh, no. Otherwise, the boy baby will be born looking like a girl baby. Yeah. And it's not very good. Life's tough enough, you don't. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I love those medic kinds of medication in, in those, in hair issues. Um, as we mentioned before, a lot of, most of my PCOS patients require something like oral isotretinoin, um, which gives them sort of a better chance of curing their acne. Again, often they need multiple courses of isotretinoin in a lifetime, perhaps more than your average person who doesn't have an underlying hormonal issue. But that seems to be the best thing, and they often do use that in combination with an anti-androgen blocking medication for the hair as well. 
What's the washout period? So let's just say you're on kind of oral acetretinoin. Mm. When, what's the washout period before you can try and have a baby? One month. Okay, so that's I, pretty good. It's so short. I get patients coming and telling me, no, it's six months. I said, is it? Where? I read that. <laughs> Everyone says it's six months. I said, it's not six months. It's actually out of your system probably within seven days. Yes. But we like to give a bit of a buffer. And, yep. you know, the, Fair enough. the product information suggests one month. Yeah. With oral acetretinoins, I'm obviously not a doctor, but when I think of it, like I think of Roaccutane, mm-hmm. and there's apparently a whole lot of side effects to that that aren't great in general anyway. Yeah, I spend half my day unpicking all the bad side effects that people read up online because that's the first place they go to. Yeah. And before we had online, no one asked those questions. So well, that's yeah. why we have the podcast <laughs> yeah, because, exactly. you know, people read a lot about fertility. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, well, you're right. And, you know, it's got a bad rap. Yeah, The does. poor medication has an incredibly bad rap, but it is the most incredible life-changing medication. And I see this every single day in my patients and they come back and they say to me, what was I worried about? I was worried about all these things I read online. None of them happened. And I'm now dating. I'm now got a better job. I now feel so confident in myself because my skin is so much better. And that like makes my day when I hear that. Um, But the bad rap came from probably the early eighties when Mm. we first had isotretinoin and we used very high doses extremely high doses. So, for example, in today's day, we'd probably use a 10 milligram dosing each day. In the 80s, we probably dosed 80 milligrams, sometimes more. And in fact, in the US and the UK, that's still what they do. And of course, everybody got side effects. And then we gave it to teenagers. Yeah. And, you know, people decided that isotretinoin changed your mood because all these teenagers got moody. And, you know, don't they do that anyway? Correct. So it's (laughs) such a difficult population to make that assessment. How do you adjust for the bias of a moody teenager when you're giving a medication to a really moody population? So there was a lot of bad press around at that time. And of course, when your darling teenager is on a medication and gets moody or does something naughty, you want to blame it on the medication, not not the teenager. (laughs) So there's been multiple, multiple, multiple studies done and no one has ever been able to prove the link between isotretinoin and mood change. So I just say that to my patients and no one's been able to prove it. If you notice that something changes, then let me know. And often people do notice a change and we have a conversation and then they stop it and things don't get better and they realise it was something else in their life that was actually causing the mood change. So I have to have to say that it's very rare that I would stop it for a mood change. The other side effects, the traditional side effects of dry skin and dry lips are just absolutely expected. I mean, the medication works via acting on our sebaceous glands, which are the glands in our skin that produce moisture and oil. And we want to dry that up because we don't want you to have oily skin so that you get pimples. So, of course, if we're drying up the oil, which is one of the moisturising factors in our skin, our skin's going to get dry and everybody gets dry lips. Absolutely everybody. If you're not getting dry lips, you're not taking the medication. Okay. And, you know, if you're a bit prone to eczema, you might get a little bit of dryness on the skin elsewhere. It makes you a little bit more sensitive in the sunlight, but then so does, you know, antibiotics such as doxycycline, minocycline. There's so many things that make you sensitive to the sunlight and we all should be keeping out of the sun anyway. And wearing sunscreen, uh, should we dare go outside? Always wearing our physical blocking sunscreen <laughs> all the time. Yes. <laughs> and a big hat. Yeah, always. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So, you know, those are very expected side effects. And then, you know, people talk about, oh, it's going to affect my liver. And it doesn't affect the liver, really, unless you consume huge amounts of alcohol or you're taking another medication that affects the liver, then maybe there's there may be some competing of the liver to break down these medications. But that's a very rare side effect, and I don't think I've ever really seen it. So I think a lot of the 
bad rap comes from the olden days when we yes. used to give people high doses and now we just give people very low doses and they manage it very well. Alice, where can people find you? Uh, well, they can find me quite close to Rayleigh, actually, just down the road. Um, yes. I'm also on Balaclava Road in St Kilda East in Melbourne. Um, so we've got a clinic there. We're happy to welcome anyone who wants yep. to come and have a chat about their skin. Yep, and they can just Google Dr Alice Rudd and yep. Skin Depth. Yep, Skin Depth Dermatology, yep. yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Thank, Thank you for having you. me. Thanks. By subscribing to our podcast and giving us a good review, it helps others to find us and we really appreciate it. Our mission is to empower women seeking real, honest and accurate fertility advice. We appreciate your help. You can follow us on social media at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. We'll be back soon with another episode.